series of nine programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. We are now standing inside the wonderful Aula Maxima. The Aula Maxima, or Great Hall, was the largest single element in the original group of buildings erected in Queen's College Cork in 1849. This impressive hall has retained its original appearance and is where formal university functions are held. A large stained glass window at the eastern end of the hall, over the balcony, commemorates George Boole, the first professor of mathematics at UCC. The original plan for the aula was a great hall for public purposes, distributing prizes, opening sessions, with a plan to be able to hold 800 students with a gallery to take 200 persons. This was scaled down considerably due to budget constraints. Thomas Dean and his associates decided to model their hall on historic precedent, the late medieval banqueting hall. In addition to its original specific uses, the Olamax has served a great many purposes down throughout the years, including a study hall, examinations room, presidential inaugurations and graduation ceremonies, and a venue for college dances historically known as hops. Between 2000 and 2002, the Aula Maxima underwent a major refurbishment and every feature including the roof, ceiling, floor, walls, fireplaces, light fittings, gallery and bookcases were painstakingly restored and conserved in fidelity to the original construction methods and materials. The Aula Maxima, loved by many, was described in 1849 by the Irish Examiner as one of the most magnificent rooms in Ireland. While the Aula Maxima is too small to host the university conferring ceremony, the Aula remains the iconic centre of UCC, the ceremonial and symbolic heart of the college. We spoke to Sarah Hart. So we're here in the Aula Max, where you have just read a very powerful story called The Graduation. Did you have a graduation of your own in this setting? Yeah, I did yeah, in 1992. Um, seems like another world, really. Um, I was just thinking today when I was walking into UCC that the, in terms of the campus and the feel, in some ways it's changed radically, in other ways it feels like it did when I was coming here, yeah. So I suppose what I'm saying is contradictory. On the one hand, I'm saying it's like another era and in another way, in a kind of a funny way, it feels like yesterday. And the generation that feature in the story you just read for us, are they the generation from your undergraduate days? Yeah, they're the exact same age as me. So they'd, they'd be 48, that kind of age. So they're people who are from... Just at the moment, the stories I'm writing, the people are from Cork. They all went to UCC. Maybe one or two didn't, you know, go to college, but most of them went to UCC and they all came from Cork. Some stayed in Cork and then quite a few maybe went away to live in Dublin or Paris. And for different reasons, they're coming, they're kind of slowly discovering their past, you know, their Cork past. So I don't know what that says about where I am in my life, that this is just organically happening. But um, yeah. 
they're very Cork related, Cork based. And Frankie in that story, he also featured as a character in a story I heard you read recently at an event at Cork International Short Story Festival. Are these stories part of a linked collection that you're putting together? Yeah, it's my first collection that I'm working on and I just made this decision. I actually got it from reading Elizabeth Strout. Now, she didn't write short stories, or certainly maybe she did, but that's not where I got the idea. She wrote that brilliant book, My Name is Lucy Barton, which mm -hmm. is a novel. And then the sequel was, I think it's like Anything is Possible. And that's actually also technically a novel. But when you're reading it, each chapter is kind of almost standalone. So it's not exactly the same thing, but it gave me the idea I enjoyed as a reader when I was reading Anything is Possible. I just really enjoyed the fact that characters kept popping up in different ways, you know, again and again. So I just thought maybe I'd try and write a collection of short stories and have there be links between the characters and the different stories. I'm trying it anyway, so. Sarah, you come from um, uh, Cork originally and you've spent a lot of time in Dublin. How do you uh, feel that Cork rates as a literary city? I think it rates extremely highly, like in every way. I mean, it's got a huge amount of writers. There seems to be a huge amount going on culturally, v very strongly. I mean, I was at the um, Cork Short Story Festival last week and I went to a lot of events. And actually, one of the great things about being at it was I was here for two days. I was free. I had no commitments. So I went as much as I could. And, you know, there was obviously a lot of interesting people from abroad, but what came across very strongly was that there was a, there's a very, very rich cultural literary life here in the city. And in fact, I'm pretty sure one of the talks I was at, uh, Pat Cotter of Monster Literature made that very point. You know, he said that he was alluding to some quote, don't know whose quote it was. Someone said years ago, you know, if you wanted to be a writer, you had to pack your bags and leave Cork. You know, I don't know whose quote that was, but Pat was making the point that actually not only is that not true now, but actually there's been a complete reversal whereby other people who are not indigenous to Cork actually come to Cork to kind of, you know, to construct lives or to be writers in that. Sarah, the, um, your route into writing was, um, first of all, you did law, like myself and Danielle. We're all sort of um, uh, lapsed lawyers. Um, and then, unusually, I think, um, you began by writing novels and it seems to me only now you've um, sort of begun to concentrate it more on the short story form. And I'm wondering if, um, as a result of your voyage through your literary life, have you got any um, advice for people starting out or any observations about I, I don't think I've, I don't think I have any great advice I mean I think I've done it in a cack-handed way in the sense <laughs> I was driving down thinking about just my career in general if I could go back I would I would probably tell my younger self be more thoughtful about how you want to approach things don't just bash on so maybe it was a form of naivety maybe it was a form of arrogance or overconfidence uh, I don't know but I think I just always you know bashed on to the next thing I never was considered which is at odds with other parts of my personality, but there's no question that if I look back, I, I never thought things through. I'd like to change that now in the next decade of my life and be more considered, you know. That's really interesting, but I think we all probably have um, that feeling of, gosh, I'd have done that differently if I could have. But we're just born into the times that we live in, aren't we? And 
you were very much encouraged, I think, um, to read and write by your mum as well. Yeah, and my dad. And I think really my two grannies, I was thinking recently, um, just my two grandmothers who were both dead, but um, my grandmother in Ross Carby, Kitty Hart, and my granny in Yall in East Cork, Claire O'Brien, they were both different in some ways, but then very similar. They were very bookish women. And right from when I was tiny, because I was the first grandchild on either side of the family, and there wasn't any grandchild, you know, to come after me for a few years. So I got a lot of attention. And both grannies always had me cocked up next to them, reading from when I was tiny. So I think that a lot, you know, those early influences definitely encouraged me to read and interest in scribbling and stuff. And you say, say more or less that you tended to rush headlong into these different career choices, but I would make the observation that I think it's because you're incredibly hardworking and dedicated to all of the things that you do. And you've had a tremendous success recently as well in um, the short story field because you won um, the... Brian McMahon. The Brian McMahon short story award, um, which is associated with Listowel Writers Week. Um, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Could you, would you mind telling us um, about the nerves that you feel? Because I think it'll make some other people like myself uh, feel, feel slightly comforted. But you have said that you feel incredibly nervous before um, uh, performing as a writer, as it were. Yeah, I do. I mean, like today I was even nervous doing it with you, but not really compared to, you know, normally. But I actually came to, I've decided, I was discussing with a friend of mine, Garvin Corkery, who also did law with me in UCC. I was discussing it with him on the phone last week before the Cork Short Story Festival. And I just decided, and I, I mean, I've decided this, like I accept that, that that's now who I am. I am always going to get extremely nervous before I do, before I do readings. I accept that about myself. And that's not going to change. So, yeah, I am very hardworking, but like my general observation, I, you know, would have family or friends who would be in the limelight a lot for better or for worse at different times. And so I've made a study of this. And so my, my conclusion is the following, is that it's not to do with your organic confidence and how you feel generally. It's that some people, they like performing, they seek it out, they enjoy it, they thrive on it, and it's something that makes them happy. And then other people, you could be perfectly confident, which I think I'm pretty confident. I mean, of course I have loads of fragilities and insecurities, but I just don't like getting up in front of people. I always feel like as if I'm almost naked, and <laughs> I just don't like it. And I'm going to accept that now about myself and say, when I have to do it, I have to do it, but that's who I am. Because like years ago, I used to think to myself, if I can get a handle on this, you know, there'll come a point when if I do it, I'll be able to, I'll be able to kind of enjoy it. And but no, that's just who I am. And I think it's legitimate. I don't think, you know, I don't think you can be good at everything or be comfortable with everything. And I think that's okay. And I think nowadays maybe because compared to the world we grew up in, you know, with social media and the internet and camera phones, like. It's not like people weren't narcissistic before they were. Human nature doesn't change, but narcissism has really taken root. And so there is a kind of a pressure almost to be, you know, putting your best foot forward in photographs to, you know, and that just doesn't sit well with me naturally. I don't like having my photograph taken either. I mean, I don't mind. I mean, I don't mean it that I, you know, that I pr pr prohibit people from taking my photo, but it's just not something that I naturally like. And I, I'm okay with that. It's a very long-winded answer. We might take a few snaps later on. <laughs> 
I agree with you completely on that. I think it's enough for us to have to do to do writing without having to be performers as well. You know, the writing is enough in itself, I think, so. I, I met actually a writer years ago and it made me feel really good. This was when I was doing my novels and I was getting a huge amount of publicity and I look back and think, my God. Anyway, I had just done something one afternoon and I think I was just completely spent and I felt at the lowest ebb ever. And I bumped into that writer, Julie Parsons, and she made me, because I don't really, until recently I haven't really known many writers, and I met her and she said she hated it. It always made her feel empty afterwards and that it was quite normal that lots of writers did because her thesis was anyway that if you're the kind of person who enjoys being on your own so solitary and you're scribbling away and you're well able to sustain that that isn't necessarily going to go hand in glove with going to the front of a stage under spotlights for some lucky people yes they can do both okay so this story is called the graduation and it's actually set in dublin but the main character, Una, is a UCC graduate and is from Cork, as are many of the other characters mentioned in the story. It's called The Graduation. She doesn't know yet that he has died. In a Tony suburb facing the Dublin Hills, it's a graduation party. The villa is crammed with young people milling in joyful configurations. More file in, carrying plastic bags and backpacks. Stationed next to the window, Una sees them arrive, passing the monkey puzzle tree. Her brother-in-law talks about his son's future career in the city. She was ambushed by him. She listens, carelessly passive, to the back and forth between him and another man. He did a master's in finance at Smurfit. He got a first, her brother-in-law says, his eyes resting briefly on her. These rehearsed lines will be repeated many times. The unspoken theme is that the young man is a winner. Her brother-in-law, who is a banker, regards poverty as a moral failure. Like him, her nephew will dedicate himself to the art of making money. The other man, Adrian, talks about his offspring. It's the usual shtick of law, medicine and business. She ransacks their sentences for something to say, scanning the room, preparing herself for imminent departure. But Adrian, smoothing his hair back, says, What's your boy up to now, Una? He's mediocre like us, she says, although she considers her son to be unique. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This momentarily silences them. I wouldn't say that, her brother-in-law says. That seems a bit harsh. Although fiscally a success, her brother-in-law is incapable of thinking through the simplest thing. Irony is lost on him. She leaves them to their unreflecting pleasure in success and in themselves. As always, she wonders how her sister married him. She thinks that in her position, she might affix masking tape to his mouth, but he would probably continue to opine. Una's daughter swoons past wearing few clothes, a spiky mass of hair and insolence. Her skin is the colour of a satsuma, although specks of white on her ankles give them a pebble-dash look. Piss off, Mum. You haven't a clue, she said earlier, when Una suggested a less heavy hand with a tan. At 15, her primary preoccupation is the male gaze. The young men drink beer, indifferent to her allure. Una does a circuit of the party, enjoying brief chats. She's fixing herself a vodka with soda and fresh lime when her phone pings. The text is from an old friend. Frankie has killed himself. She reads the text, processing the words before stepping outside. Late August, humid with a strong wind. The trees are rustling, a briny tang in the air, the sea is nearby. Nightfall. Both students in UCC long ago, Una and Frankie had an on-off thing for years. Afterwards, she read about him, that he made serious money, that things went wrong. Maybe there's a domino effect, one thread unravels, then another, she doesn't know. Several blurry moments elapse before she calls the man who sent the text. It's on the radio. The police had to kick the door down. 
Blood crashes in her ears, she closes her eyes. It's awful, isn't it, he says. Can you believe it, of all people? Burgers sizzle on a grill, releasing their meaty aroma. A spatula held by someone's arm flips them. Voices seem far away, sounds intermingle. Her surroundings come loose. She listens to the voice on the other end of the phone. He mouths platitudes. Last Christmas, she bumped into Frankie in Grafton Street. He was buying a present for his daughter. Would you have a look at this dress, Una, he said. Give me a second opinion. She's a demon to buy for. She followed him into the shop, noticing his unshaven face, how his weight had ballooned, thinking it odd he should solicit her advice. I'm hopeless at these things. The tang of beer. She steered him towards a more suitable choice. The present was parceled up. He suggested a drink. Two old pals having a Christmas drink. They ducked into the snog at the back of Kyo's. Dark wood, the faint smell of Guinness farts, old memories, the pub of Victorian shrine. The wife had left. A bank sent in the receiver, he said, turning around from where he stood at the hatch ordering drinks. They changed the locks on the office building without even telling me. I nearly had a heart attack if they'd even picked up the phone and let me know. Una has noticed how identification with the set of economic expediencies increases capacity for rationalisation of indefensible practices. It's a topic her brother-in-law could give a dissertation on, she thinks, her eyes moist. Keep in touch, the man, she called, says. I'll see you at the funeral. She hangs up. There's nothing more to say. Una holds her phone in dazed confusion before walking to the end of the garden towards inky shapes, towards the smell of pot. May I? she asks, so the young men clustered behind a clump of trees look unsure. A young man with a sensitive look hands her joint. She exhales, trying to picture Frankie's face. He was good looking back in the day with dark eyes and a muscular build. He was smart too. They had more than one drink in the snug. He kept ordering rounds. She went home half cut, leaving a bag of presents behind. This dope is too strong for me, she says, handing it back. Thank you. She pauses. Life is short. Don't turn into assholes. She feels eyes on her retreating back. Frankie had his public self stripped away. She never checked on him. She doesn't want to elevate the significance of her connection to Frankie to adopt the mantle of chief mourner, but she asked herself why she didn't call. We should do this again, Leggy Una, he said on taking leave of her. He seemed delighted to have met her. It's a date, she said. Be there or be square. Some blarney like that, although she planned to follow up on it. She remembers him turning on the street as she did to wave. Back inside the house, she fixes herself a large vodka, gulping it down, then has another. She finds her husband, who is exiting a bathroom, telling him the news. She feels in danger of being derailed. I'm sorry, he says. Once when she was very pissed, she said that she thought Frankie might be the one that got away. She apologised afterwards. She doesn't like to see the pity spreading behind her husband's eyes. Frankie wasn't somebody to be pitied, anything but that. I don't want to talk about it, she says. She finds her sister, but finds herself unable to voice the news, although Frankie was her friend too. She listens to her sister and some rail thin woman discuss marathon running. Running, Una has observed, is taken up in the middle years by successful people who don't read. There's a whiff of the midlife crisis about it. She stares at a new painting on the wall as they discuss their personal bests. The house is full of the accretions of a long marriage and her sister's shopping habit. Una feels in some bottomless space. When a gap opens, she says, next she will do the Camino. Her sister's eyebrows lift. This is not what she meant to say. She doesn't want to swamp their conversation. Her face is stiff with strain. Her brother-in-law materialises in front of them. His expression is solemn, but it's obvious that he's enervated. Una decides he knows about Frankie. When he speaks, he has the muted excitement of somebody passing on bad news. Frankie Barron has been found dead in his flat. Her sister's hand is covering her mouth. He checks Una's reaction. You used to knock about with him, didn't you? Una draws in her breath deeply. The developer, her sister's friend says. Her brother-in-law nods. Looks like he killed himself. 
Oh, Una, that's shocking, her sister says, her mouth forming in an O. Frankie is the last person. She trails off. Una wonders if Frankie banked with her brother-in-law. She knows this is simplistic. He probably banked with many financial institutions, and yet... Una's hand grasps her other wrist. She imagines people picking over his carcass, saying things like, suicide is so selfish. She has never understood this point of view. Is that final act not born out of complete desperation? She imagines sirens roaring down the road. She resists imagining a reconstruction. You never know what's under the bonnet, her brother-in-law says, shaking his head. Now he's a psychologist. He has always overestimated his skill in all things. She thinks how Frankie was the opposite. Despite the moving and shaking, there was always a chink in Frankie's armour. This is what she found attractive. Makes you want to run an inventory over your life, Una says, fixing eyes with her brother-in-law. She feels her throat closing. Come here to me, her sister says, putting an arm around her, but Una rests away. She makes her way to the living room, where a smattering of young folk dance. The carpet has been rolled up, the furniture pushed back or taken from the room. A lone disco light flashes from the corner. Others dot the periphery. She takes off her shoes and throws them, missiles rocketing through the air. One shoe hits a Patrick Scott painting, tilting its gold disc to the side. This provokes a rustle of self-conscious laughter. Are you okay, Auntie Una? her nephew asks. I'm above ground, she says, giving him the thumbs up. She remembers that she and Frankie fought a lot. You're addicted to drama, he said once. He accused her of being too intense. She sees her daughter sprawled on a velvet sofa, then sitting up, looking appalled at this maternal lack of dignity. Una waves at her daughter, who glowers back. A magnificent-looking young woman in dungarees, hair streaming down her back, dances with abandon. Una follows her lead. Her daughter tugs at her sleeve. You're drunk, Mum, she says. I'm getting Dad. I'm okay, pet. Some minutes later, her husband is at her elbow, come to hustle her home. You got a good one there, her aunt said once. You're teaching tomorrow, missus, he says. He gives her a half smile. I'm under orders. I'll cope, she says. Take the Gestapo home. She's schooled tomorrow. Una dances away from him. She wants a night off from being a mother or wife. She's looking back, remembering him and all that went before. She trusts her arm up in the air. She instructs her nephew to play your song, the Billy Paul version. When it finishes, she says, play it again. She dances, mad disconnected thoughts rocketing through her mind. She wonders what all the striving is about when everyone is on a collision course with death. Her sister comes into the room. She imagines to smooth things over. Her sister has always been the peacemaker in the family. But her sister is telling her son to crank up the volume and she takes Una's hand, squeezing it. Frankie loved to dance, Una says. Her sister nods, her face clenched in sadness. The sisters dance until the underside of their hair is wet. From the corner, she sees her brother-in-law's face until it's a smudge. She pictures a young Frankie dancing, dipped in light at 22 or 3 with a shorn head, the shifting uncertainties in his face that she loved momentarily banished, his dark eyes gleaming in Sir Henry's, a club they loved, the centre of their universe, now gone too. Beside them in the drawing room, the dazzling overgrown children with cloudless young faces dance, immune to the dangers and sorrows the world dishes out, believing that life goes on and on. Ava as our featured guest writer this afternoon. Ava Walsh was born in Watford, studied in Dublin and now lives in Cork where he lectures in the School of English at University College Cork and is director of creative writing. His memoir, Sissy's Abattoir, published in 2009, was broadcast on RTE's Book on One. 
His novel, The Diary of Mary Travers, published in 2014, was shortlisted for the Kerry Group Novel of the Year Award and longlisted for the 2016 International Dublin Literary Award. He was associate editor with Catherine Marshall of Modern Ireland in 100 Artworks, edited by Fintan O'Toole and shortlisted for the Borgash Energy Irish Book Awards. Speaking of um, Aver's most recent novel, The Trumpet Shall Sound, Emma Donoghue said, it's a plausible, sensuous coming-of-age story about a genius wrestling with love and ambition across 18th century Europe. And Joseph O'Connor said, Ava Walsh brings us into Handel's world with such precision, clarity and beauty that it seems real and unforced, the work of a true artist. The story of a truly memorable event in the cultural history of Ireland this fine novel is also a profound meditation on creativity itself, told with imaginative audacity and tempered by scholarly scruple, an immensely enjoyable read. We're very much looking forward to hearing Ava read from the novel for us here this afternoon, and he's also kindly agreed to chat to us afterwards, and we look forward to asking him some questions. So can we give a big welcome, please, for Ava Walsh. Great, thank you very much. Um, so, first of all, I want to say to Danielle and to Madeleine, thanks so much for inviting me on this beautiful afternoon and a fantastic venue, particularly the lovely uh, setting we have behind us here. And thanks for a chance to uh, share the work and to both of you very much uh, for your support and your friendship uh, with the writing. And uh, as you, we all know, that's invaluable to have such a, a great community of writers to, to support and um, give us a sense of that our work is, is being able, that we can share it. And um, thank you both very much. Thank you. Okay, the novel is about the uh, first performance of Handel's Messiah in Dublin. He spent six months in Dublin, and we know a fair bit about what happened. So, Dublin, November 1741. Angry Dublin rain whips against the window as he prepares to write a birthday letter to a dead woman. He picks up the old leather folder full with writing paper. He thinks, Luca, years ago on an early summer afternoon, they'd wandered into a small bookshop near the Pantheon and Luke insisted on buying the smart new leather folder for him. George protested it was too expensive. Then go and fill it with operas and come back a rich man, Lucas said. And there in the dimly lit shop, ignoring the young woman watching from behind the counter, they kissed. Luca and his caro Sassone, the two of them just twenty. Another rattle against the window. Almost nine o'clock and fully bright now in Dublin despite the rain. He shakes his head, takes up his pen, dips it in ink and writes. 18th of November, 1741. Abbey Street, Dublin. Before him on the desk is a small oval portrait. He looks up, touches the corner of the silver frame with his finger, and then continues to write. Dearest mother, 
As always, I send you my most affectionate greetings on your birthday. This address will come as a surprise to you. Dublin, the chief city of His Majesty's Kingdom of Ireland. So far from our homeland, the furthest I have travelled yet, and the clearest sign that I have fallen from fashion. London has finished with me, and now an old man, I must repair my fortunes in this rain-sodden outpost. I write this only to you, my beloved mother, and do I dare to utter the truth that I've wasted my time. And worse than that, I've wasted over £10,000 putting on unwanted operas in London. Wasted that money as surely as I'd scattered each banknote into the English Channel. Only to you, my truest friend, can I tell the truth. And this truth is possible between us only because you are long dead and in your honourable grave. struck by what Joseph O'Connor said when he was writing about the trumpet child band when he described it as a profound meditation on creativity itself because I thought that was an excellent way of putting it and I think there's lots of the ways in which you explore aspects of Handel's life and his um, writing of music that resonated with um, the, the life of a writer of fiction I suppose and I'm wondering were you consciously exploring that, the process of creativity while you were writing the novel, or did it just creep in there? It, it really crept in because um, the reason I started writing it was partly because I wanted to imagine what the first performance was like. So, in fact, I wrote the closing first. So the final section of the novel is the first day, the first performance of Messiah. And it's from everyone's point of view except Handel's. So you wander through the audience or through the singers, and then you finally come to him. So in fact, I wrote that first, and then the rest of the novel came into being. And the second thing that motivated me was the idea that Handel lived such a public life, and there's absolutely no record of private life, and no question of it. There's two museums, three museums to him, one in London, one in Halle, where he was born, and the Founding Museum in London also has a section to handle. Many distinguished biographies, and the man had absolutely no private life. And I thought, there's something there. The king asked him, well, George II said, well, Mr. Handel, why are you not married? And his reply was, sir, music is my mistress. I thought, hmm, yeah. I wonder. <laughs> so that was part of my motivation. But the whole creature, like the idea, only when I finished it did I realize I was actually writing about composition. And I'm not a musician, I'm not a singer. I did a lot of research as much as I could. But I suppose what interested me was the misery of his time in Dublin, the sense in which he had actually failed, and the, the very brave face he put in his letters. And out of that, the creation of this miraculous sort of piece of music which revived his fortunes, but he didn't want to do it. He wasn't interested, and it was kind of a way to do it. So it went in. I mean, I, I didn't set out to write about a, a, a composer as a creative person because I suppose I thought, well, I'm not a musician, but it just happened. The book was a book club choice in Dublin for the uh, the game, a gay men's reading club. So it was 25 men, and I went up and they talked, and they took it apart. It was brilliant. It was one of the best sort of interactions I ever had, and they had very, very strong views 
on George's early selfishness, his treatment of uh, Peter, who's his servant, but I also believe to be his partner. And one of the things I was trying to write about was how earlier lives negotiated um, sexualities that weren't permitted. And you could do it partly with money, but you had to do it with subterfuge. You lived in an artistic world. But if you wanted to live with someone who was of the same gender, you really had to set up something like secretary, servant, adoption, all of these kinds of ways in which, and I think that's what they did. And I was trying to talk about what I saw as the cost. But that particular group judged him very harshly. They felt that he kind of threw everything under the bus for the sake of his art. And we don't really understand that, do we? <laughs> Any of us here, no? <laughs> Mary Rose McCarthy is my name, and I'm reading you a bit of the beginning of a short story called The Eye of the Needle. There is a haze on the ocean this morning, obscuring the yachts that came in last night. Sick is how you describe the sea when it was calm like this. Look, you'd say, not a ripple out of it. It must be sick. You were always coming out with your own unique sayings, which you thought only I understood. It's too early to tell if that mist out there signals a fine day or if it will fill in with drizzle and cut off everything. Not that it matters too much to me. Either way, I'm not up to anything today or tomorrow, or next week. You should try and get out more, you'd nag, especially after one of your jaunts to book club or community council, or just coffee and cake with the girls. It's not good to cut yourself off like this. You need somebody other than me, another refrain of yours. The sky is a delicate damask color, mocking me with reminders of your favorite rose. Though they don't grow so well here by the sea, the salt rhymes and burns them. I can taste it now on my lips, always in the air, even without a breeze. When there's a gale force wind, everything is coated. Salt, used for curing and preserving, but nothing preserved you. The whole point of coming here when I retired was to get away from the hectic lives we both lived. That's why I was content to sit at home, not bothering at all with social activities. I always think that's something that women are better at. The chatting, the sharing, the intimacies. Men never think of meeting a friend for coffee to discuss our relationships or health. Instead, we talk of sport and horses and whether the economy is finally on the up. Still not sure who has the better part, men or women. Sometimes I used to think you talked too much to friends over a coffee revealing what rightfully should remain between two people. Once you say something aloud, it's out there, and you've no control over who will pass it on to another so-called intimate friend. Yes, that's me, cynical and distrustful to the last. Now, in my splendid isolation, perched on a cliff edge, five miles from the village, it strikes me that perhaps you did have a point, that maybe I should get out more. Because, now that you're gone, the constant swish and swoosh of the sea is an irritant where once it soothed. The 
The call of the oyster catcher and curlew pierced my brain, setting my nerves jangling. The solace of nature has become an aggravation. All that brought us here to grow old together now appears to conspire against me, jeering my naivety in thinking that I, a townie, could live in wilderness. And neither can I live alone. It's like a part of me has been cleaved off. There are t tales of amputees who still feel the pain of a missing limb. It's a bit like that. I think you're there, and turn to you, to draw your attention to the passing of a container ship, or to ask you how to light the oven. And each time I turn, the words die on my lips, as I remember all over again that you're not here. Each time feels like the first time. The first brutal realisation that you weren't going to wake up. How could you lie there looking serene, almost a smile playing on your lips, as if you were dreaming funny dreams? So lifelike, so very dead. Being in the thick, mist, thick of mist like this is disorientating. I can only see a few feet ahead as droplets settle around me forming ledges on my eyebrows. You always said my eyebrows were too bushy. Today they are a sponge for the salt-laden mist. It's hard to figure out where I am. Everything is as it was, but I can't see. Just have a vague sense of shapes. Just as it feels as if you're still here beside me, but I can't see you. Just have a sense of the shape of you. My name is Kate Barry, and this is the opening section from a memoir, Brute en avant. The house lay just within what might be thought of the limits of the city centre. Edwardian, it overlooked the river and was not far from the park and the grounds of the university. It had no driveway, and access was through a gate and up a slim flight of steps. There were not more than seven or eight steps but my legs wobbled by the time I lifted the door knocker, its brass heft and solidity forming a satisfying contrast to my pain and bony hand. The first day, my mother had stood on the steps with me, wearing her best coat, both of us waiting for a mysterious person. Finally, the door swung inward, and a very pleasant, tall woman in her forties was ushering us in and directing us up the stairs to her consulting room which was a fine bay-windowed space at the front of the house. I had dressed up too, in my 16-year-old way, and can see myself sitting on the chair opposite the other chair. I have sat in many rooms with this configuration of furniture. My mother sat on the sofa that sat at right angles between the chairs, facing the window in the early evening light. Or maybe on this occasion, she sat on the chair and I sat on the sofa. I can't remember that. But I do remember I had also put on my best coat. It was a red velvet coat that I bought in a second-hand shop in town and that my mother had said was made out of old curtains. <laughs> I found this hard to believe as the velvet was not at all shabby and was a lovely rich red colour that I imagined went well with my Oxblood Doc Martens. My hair was freshly washed and very long back then. I was wearing my favourite earrings. There were large silver teardrops with a row of tinkling silver discs at the base of each drop. 
I have put some effort into my appearance, as this was to be a big day in my life. It's the first time I've seen a therapist. I thought this was a very grown-up, sophisticated thing to do, because half my knowledge of therapy came from reading about literary people who lived in lofts or brownstones, not dormer bungalows, and fretted over whether the New Yorker had published their latest poem. The other half came from teenage soaps like Home and Away or Beverly Hills 90210, where every few episodes, a female character would seek help from an issue like bulimia or trichotomania, and within a very short time, cured this affliction. The GP's di diagnosis was anorexia, and every day after the first day, the door was answered not by the psychologist, but by the nurse she employed. The nurse would weigh me and record my weight before having a quick look at the notebook that served as my food diary. The reason my legs wobbled going up the steps was dehydration. The appointments were on a Friday afternoon and Thursday night saw me taking industrial quantities of laxatives to bring my weight down to its current minimum. That is, of course, as I knew from my extensive research, the opposite of what real anorectics do. They hide weights in their pockets and drink litres and litres of water with the intention of fooling the scales in the opposite direction. Over the next couple of years, I certainly did develop some kind of eating disorder. What I, re what I remember that first day, that I sat in that room, my dangling earrings and my red coat, I think I suffered more than anything from a severe and excruciating case of notions. that <laughs> 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 my deliberate cultivating of symptoms with any indication of a lack of sincerity on my part, my commitment to therapy was solemn and total. The chief among my collection of notions was the idea that counselling was going to transform me. Through the medium of intelligent and probing questioning, I would finally become poised and capable and less of a prisoner of my own weirdness and social ineptitude. The rising choppy tide of darkness would ebb. Phrases like reality, career path, and making a living was no longer frightening. <laughs> Locating and talking through my issues would blunt the quills of the porcupine of worry that had taken up residence in my chest. I would get better, and if that didn't work, it was a backup plan that if I tried hard enough, I could make myself so thin I might die. <laughs> Fiction at the Friary and on Campus was presented by Madeleine Darcy and Danielle McLaughlin. Location introductions by J.P. Quinn. Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.